Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 is where we're going to be as we continue in our second week of our series, How to Read the Bible. And once you are there, would you join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures today? As we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 is where we'll be. Some of you are feeling deja vu because we just went through the whole book of 2 Timothy, just wrapped it up, and here we are again. Yes, we're going to go a little bit deeper on with this passage today. But as a bit of a reminder, we're jumping right into a letter, a conversation that's happening between the Apostle Paul and his protege, his apprentice, young pastor Timothy. So we're coming into a conversation, you know, hearing a soundbite is what we're going to be reading. But we're going to call attention to the way that Paul here talks about the Bible, what we've been looking at. So with that being said, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then here he says it, all scripture is inspired by God and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God, speaking to Timothy, but this, this, this command being true to all, so that the person of God, the man, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the chance to gather again today as we continue to learn how to read the scriptures. I pray that today, God, that this invitation into a new paradigm of reading the Bible like Jesus, um, I pray that it would bring comfort for those that are, feel uncomfortable with the scriptures and uh, for those of us that uh, have grown apathetic to what this book is as, a, as an apprentice to Jesus, that this would awaken us anew to uh, just the incredible gift that your word is. We pray that you speak today. In your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Inbox zero. In an age of 24-7 digital messaging, there are few simple joys for me like that of an empty email inbox. My wife, Erin, with her over 45,000 unread emails, might be cut from a different cloth. We'll just put it that way. Man, Inbox Zero, it was a, it's a framework for sanity amid the around 200 billion emails that are sent every single day. Uh, most of those are from your boss, I know. But this phrase of Inbox Zero was originally coined by the uh, podcaster and writer Merlin Mann, who kind of proposed Inbox Zero as a way to sanity amid all of the emails that we come through and we see every day. And it was built around these principles of uh, delete, delegate, respond, defer, or just do. And central to the culling of Inbox Zero was to pay sharp attention to the sender. Who wrote the email? Is it from your boss? Is it from your coworker? Is it a subscription reminder from Me Undies? Is it a distant cousin out of nowhere with a large inheritance to share? Is it the LA you know, Parking Violations Bureau? Who is it from? You see, authorship determines acceptance. This is central to not just the way that you think through your inbox with your email, but even your physical mailbox. Authorship determines acceptance. Who you see this thing being from, you immediately fill in not just how you're going to read what you find inside, but oftentimes whether or not you read it to begin with. 
All of the credit card company advertisements that I get every single day, those don't get opened. I'm not pouring over those like a letter from my grandma, like, whoa, what do they write me? Those go straight to the trash. Why? Because authorship determines acceptance. And as we began our fall series last week, How to Read the Bible, we started with that question, what is the Bible? How did Jesus of Nazareth understand this book? And this week, we're taking that question a little bit deeper. Where does the Bible come from? Because as with our inbox, authorship determines acceptance. Who wrote this book? What you believe about the Bible and who wrote it will determine how you read it, but also whether or not you read it to begin with. And so last week, we saw a little bit of Jesus' profound view of the scriptures back in our time with Matthew chapter 4. You'll see it behind me again as a reminder where Jesus refers to the writings of the scriptures uh, to the writings of Moses as, what does he say? Man must live on every word that comes from where? Not from the mouth of Moses or the pen of Moses, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus understands these human writings as some way coming from the mouth of God. Or in another instance, in Mark chapter 12, before Jesus quotes Psalm 110 written by David, Jesus said, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't just a poem of David, it was from the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus has this profound view that not only did he hold when he came to the scriptures, but he handed it down to his first disciples, those that we call the apostles. They carried this view themselves. A couple of examples from your weekly Bible passage this week, if you read that. Um, for this series, and I'm going to start doing this whenever we do topical series, I've, I've noticed this, is... I'm going to start giving like on the weekly Bible passage page, just like a, hey, look for this as you're reading it. Because I was talking to my friend Charles who read and he was like, I think this is what the weekly Bible passage was this week. And I was like, yes, yeah. But next time, like, you know, look for these things. And so here's the thing. You read through many of these weekly Bible passages I'm about to show you. So here's what I was encouraging or hoping you would see is all three of these this week were about the early understanding of the Christians of what the Bible is. So to show those now. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, verse 20 through 21, he refers to the Old Testament as the writings of these prophets, these men who spoke from God as they were what? Carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the writings of the, these prophets, it's them being carried along by the Spirit. More on what that means in a moment. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 it's incredible. Paul here is reflecting on his own writings and the writings of the other apostles. And he sees this as being some, a gift freely given by God, not just human wisdom, but the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Or as we just read a moment ago, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul describes this view of Jesus handed down to his apostles through inventing this word that we translate as the word inspired. When Paul writes, all the scriptures are inspired, it's this Greek word, theonoustos. It's a compound word that Paul invents. Theo being God, noustos being spirit or breath. So Paul says all of the scripture is theonous. It is God-breathed. It is God-spirited. It is, the, you know, our best swing at it in English is inspired. And this question is what we're looking at today. The first aspect of our, if you remember from last week, our paradigm for how we're reading the scriptures, you'll see it here behind me, uh, just to the next one with the overview, there we go. The, this is, what is the Bible? We introduced this last week as a reminder. You're gonna hear this every single week. The, the Bible is the library of ancient writings, both divine and human, 
that tell a unified story leading us to Jesus and forming us as his people. Today we are looking at what does it mean for the Bible to be both divine and human. Both divine and human. Now, this has been one of the primary motivating questions of me and my studies over the past eight years. This is something I spent a lot of time in my own like education in. I'm fascinated by what the heck is this book and where did it come from? And so today, I'm just warning you, this is me trying to edit down eight years of what's been really most helpful for me in understanding the scriptures to help you walk out of here with a better sense of what is this book and who wrote it. And so with that being said, this is gonna be a little bit more like the Story of Justice series, if you were here with us through that. And what I mean by that is today is gonna be an exercise in loving the Lord our God, not just with all of our heart and soul, but with all of our mind. And so there's coffee in the back. But you were, this is going to be good. So let's, let's, let's continue. Let's start to get into this a little bit here. Now, when I say that the Bible is divine and human, there are, most of you in this room would give a hearty amen. You would nod your heads. Yes, the Bible is divine. It is the word of God. It's inspired like we just read. It is maybe, you know, some of you, depending on your tradition, it is God's love letter to me. It is his divinely communicated message from God to us. It's a perspective that was shared by an individual, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart was raised in the church. He came to faith, the Christian faith, in high school. He ended up going to Bible college and then seminary, all out of his desire to rightly handle the word of truth, to handle this word of God. But his journey took a sharp turn as he went to seminary because he became more acquainted with the humanity of this book, specifically in his studies, New Testament studies. He began to understand the history of manuscript transmission, the differences between some of those manuscripts, the seeming contradictions between the Gospels. Some quick examples. Did Jesus cleanse the temple, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, at the end of his ministry before he was crucified, or like John says at the beginning? Or both. You have to think, somebody cleansing the temple twice is like the temple security is not doing their job. So which, which is it? Or maybe the angels at the tomb, were there two or were there three? What do we do about the fact that Mark's gospel has an ending that doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts? How did Judas actually die? Did he hang or did he jump and have his stomach broke open? Really weird questions, I know, to start off. But this is what Bart Ehrman begins to see. And and all of these, I'll, I'll kind of give this away, all of these have really good answers once we understand these books as what they're doing. But... All the same, as Bart began to see some of this, he found in his words that the Bible is, at the end of the day, a very human book, which meant for him it could not be divine. It could not be from God. So Bart Ehrman today still reads the Bible every day, but he no longer believes it to be the Word of God or Jesus to be the Son of God. He believes Jesus to be a divinized version of Robin Hood, a human legend that is taken on in all of these writings. And so he still is a New Testament professor teaching the, the history of the New Testament and what's in this, the content of this, but no longer as someone who believes it. Maybe some of you here resonate with someone like Bart Ehrman, where maybe over your years of reading the scriptures, maybe it was some YouTube video that you watched or some blog you read or some even you know, little like quick meme that, that like just this one image did enough to make you aware of the humanity of this book this complex human history, and so maybe you have been tempted or you have walked away from the faith, believing that this book cannot be divine from God, or at the very least, maybe it's not, like Paul said, all scripture that is inspired and God-breathed, but maybe just some of it. Or maybe, 
what I would imagine for most of you in this room is you love Jesus in the church, and so you just kick your questions under the rug, secretly fearing the day when the humanity of the Bible will rear its head and force you to make a decision leading you away from Jesus, and you're just trying to put off what you fear is going to be the decision that's going to come at some point. Now, all of these different postures that we may find ourselves come out of the tradition that many of us have grown up in in the American church, one like Ehrman, Bart Ehrman grew up in, one that emphasized the divine nature, origins, and authority of the Bible at the expense of its human nature, origins, and history. Now, where did this come from is a little bit of, you know, here's put your philosopher hat on for a moment, is the creep of dualism into the Western world. Dualism being a belief that something is either divine or human. They are opposites of one another. So think about this. Something is either physical or it is spiritual. Something is either natural or it's supernatural. It is spirit or human. It is body or soul. It is heaven or earth. It is not an overlap, but an either-or belief that for something to be God's work, or in this case, God's word, it must then be entirely or mostly apart from any human involvement or history. Now, this either-or belief, we could kind of summarize as a golden tablet's view of the Bible. Now, sure, we don't believe that, like, you know, to, you know, whoever, you know, me or some other pastor, you know, 100 years ago or something like that, the Bible floated down from earth in English, wrapped in goatskin leather, if you're fancy, with a concordance and maps and chapters and, and we're like, here it is. We don't believe that, to be sure, but when you begin to talk to Christians about how they understood how this thing was written, or even pastors and theologians, you'll find language of talking about the authors of Scripture as mere flutes, instruments that the Spirit played who were uninvolved in the work. We would imagine it's like Paul says, man, you know what, I really got to write a letter to the church in Galatia. And so he sits down, you know, quill and papyrus, and his eyes roll back in his head. And he wakes up like two hours later, and he's like, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Man, this is really good. For most of us, we don't really know what it is. Maybe it's not a trance, but we don't we don't know how to hold the tension between this being a divine and human book because we exist within a dualist worldview that is either or between those two things. And so in that either or worldview, maybe we don't say it's a golden tablet, but at the very least, we emphasize the divine over the human. And then when we, like Bart Ehrman, come into contact with the human nature of this book, we hit the deconstruct eject button from the plane. This is the primary paradigm of American Christianity. This is where most of the debates about inerrancy and infallibility came in the past generation. If you have no idea what I just said, that's totally okay. But see, these are based in a good intuition. Is this book spoken of as God's word? Yes. But does it come to us through an overriding of humanity as a vehicle? That's the question. You see, many of us carry some form of this either-or view of the Bible, but this is a paradigm that is absolutely foreign to Jesus and the authors of the Bible, all the way back to page one. When we go back to page one of the Bible, in Genesis 1, 
verse one, in the beginning of the story, we are introduced to the spirit or the breath of God. When, when uh, Paul, writing to Timothy, talked about the, the theonoustos, the pneuma of God, the spirit or the breath, that shows up as the ruach in Hebrew in the beginning of Genesis. And at the beginning of the story, the spirit of God, the invisible, personal, life-giving presence of the creator is at work within the world, forming and filling all of creation as God speaks. And so the ones that we're most often aware of is God's thing, saying things like you'll see behind me, let there be light. And what? Boom, there was light. That God's word brings a new state of reality out of nothing. However, and there is a really big however here, this is not the only way that God works in the world. The spirit too, as we keep reading through Genesis 1, works through indirect mediated agency. Big words, let me show you what I mean. Uh, 1 verse 11, you'll see behind me. Then God said, just like he did in, with the light, let the earth produce vegetation, plants. And it was so. Oh, cool. How did it get here? The earth produced vegetation and God saw that it was good. Indirect, mediated agency. They don't, plants don't just appear. God doesn't say, let there be Monstera, and there's Monstera. God doesn't say, I wish we could do that. God doesn't say, let there be fiddly fit, you know, there it is, or apple tree, whatever it might be. It doesn't just happen, it grows up from the earth. And so the point here, simple point from the opening verses of the Bible, Genesis 1 should challenge any belief that for God to do something in the world, it must be apart from natural earthly workings. Michael Horton, theologian, writes, in Genesis 1, you'll see it behind me, God not only decrees things into existence directly, more ordinarily, the spirit works within creation to draw out its own natural operations with which he has endowed it so that it properly fills its creative ends. Put short, the opening pages of the Bible give us not an either-or view of God's work with the world, but a both-and. And in Genesis chapter 2, that paradigm continues as the story zooms in on humanity as God's royal representatives that we are made from, as the story goes, made from dust and the breath of God. Being made from the dust is this symbol, this image of not just our mortality, dust just to ashes, dust to dust, but also the fact that humans are earthlings. We, this, is, this is our space. We, we belong to this earth, and yet having the breath of God, we have the life of heaven within us. We are, by our very nature and existence, little overlaps of heaven and earth in each and every single human being. This is what it means to be the royal representative of God. This is what it means to be an image bearer. And so in Genesis 2 then, we have this both-and view that continues throughout the rest of the story. The primary way that the spirit works throughout the Bible is through human agency, all without overriding or diminishing our humanity, rather empowering it. And so we could go through all of these examples here. Joseph in Genesis with his interpretation of dreams. Bezalel in Exodus and his building of the tabernacle. Moses leading Israel. David governing Israel. The scribes and the editors of the Old Testament scriptures. The prophets as they preach. And even the Messiah as he comes. Jesus to work is all through what? Him being fully human and the Holy Spirit at work within him. And even at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being sent into the disciples today. When we talk about what it means to be the image of God, sanctification, godliness, when we pray like Jesus taught us on earth as it is in heaven, these are all ways of talking about the increasing overlap of a human and divine partnership. More on this next week. 
But all this to say, a both-and view of a divine human partnership is not foreign to the Bible. It's what the whole thing is about. Now, returning to the question of authorship and how did we get this thing, we see that the authorship of the Bible itself is also one of human and divine partnership. You see, the Bible is um, not just what this, this is about, this human and divine partnership. It's how the authors of the Bible talk about how the thing was written. No ecstatic trances, no loss of consciousness or agency or golden tablets in the forest, but a partnership, a co-working of humans becoming fully humans as they partner with God. Some examples, I'm gonna fire these off because we could spend all day here. In Genesis 15, verse five, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, but Abram said, you know, it's this promise, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And Abram talks back to God and says, you know, I'm still childless. How am I gonna have this incredible nation? No trance, a conversation, a covenant partnership. In Exodus 17, verse 14, it's actually the first time the writing of the Bible is talked about in the Bible. After this incredible victory that God brings about for the people of Israel, God tells Moses, write this down as something to remember. And then Moses goes and writes it down. That's the Bible. (laughs) Write this down as something to remember. Okay, God. And then the book of Exodus, here you go. In 2 Samuel 23, David recounts his writings, mostly being the Psalms here, as him saying, the spirit of the Lord was on me and his word was on my tongue. In Isaiah verse eight, the prophet says, this is what the Lord spoke to me. His writing is a separate event from his prophetic vision that he had. Even in the midst of prophetic visions happening, that's not where the Bible's being written. It's them then later reflecting on and repeating and giving that to us. Or I love one of the best, my favorite examples about the authorship of the Bible is prophet Jeremiah in verse 11. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and calls him out and says, man, from before you were ever born, I've set you apart to be a prophet. And Jeremiah is like, I don't know how to talk. And so he goes, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And Jeremiah is like, okay. So what does he do? He hires a scribe by the name of Baruch. And Baruch is the one who writes what we have as the book of Jeremiah. And so you see human divine partnership at work here that is far more than you know the word the lord came to me and said like you know and then like the book of jeremiah now all of this is summarized then in what we read in the weekly bible passage this week second peter verse one once again the writers of the scriptures were carried by the spirit first corinthians they were taught by the spirit or again second timothy three they were inspired this is a god-breathed god-spirited text as an example of this, to get this into our minds, this is from one of my professors, was M.C. Escher's Drawing Hands. There's a visual paradox that gets at what has historically been the orthodox view of the scriptures from both Jewish and Christian traditions. It's a visual paradox of mutual existence of both hands, both distinct from one another while still existing at, as one at the same time. This is a both and paradigm, and this is a visual representation of what the people of God throughout history have seen when they see this book. You know, we could call it writing hands. Written by God, written by man, and neither of those two defeat one another. Now, to set this all in here now, for Jesus and the authors of Scripture, the humanity of the Bible is not a bug, it's a feature. The humanity of the Bible is not a bug, it's a feature. 
Those of you in the tech industry know what I'm talking about here. But to ring everybody else up to speed, often when a product or an app is launched, users end up finding something they don't like within the product. And they perceive this as being a bug, a flaw, a mistake, that it's broken. And so they complain, they leave bad reviews in the app store, or they you know, take to Twitter and mob out or whatever. And then, so the, then the developers come and they reply, no, 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 it's not a bug. We didn't, this is intentional. We put that there on, on purpose. That's, the function was put there by our designers for a specific purpose. And what ends up happening most often is as those users now understand the intention of that function, it often becomes their favorite part of the experience. One example is you know, Wikipedia when it was launched back in 2001. And everybody started freaking out because they were, anybody can edit this thing. Don't you guys need to, you guys didn't set up any privacy filters. You didn't, and what did they do? Wikipedia said, no, that's the whole point of this thing. It's not an encyclopedia that's edited by anyone else. It's edited by everyone. And so you might see that as a bug, but it is a feature. We need to beware of a golden tablet's view of the Bible that seems to put the humanity of the Bible at an arm's distance. Because for Jesus, the humanity of the Bible is not a problematic necessity, but it's part of God's very way of working within this world. And so as I said last week, if you and I, if we find ourselves with a different paradigm for the Bible than Jesus, the odds are perhaps it's not the Bible that needs to be deconstructed, but our current either-or paradigm. And what we ought to do is receive a both-and perspective. Now, fire hose incoming. Are you ready? Okay, cool. Some of you are left wondering here, if the book is so human, how can I trust it? Yes? Okay, cool, divine, dual hands. I, I have a human hand too. How can I trust this thing? Now, for some of you, that's because that this, this being a human document is written within different cultures with different perspectives. How can I trust what's coming forward as being for me based off its context and culture? We're gonna spend a whole week on, on that, that question. And in fact, that's what this whole thing is about. So book club, sign up on the uh, collectivechurch.com slash current series, and you can catch up before Thursday. Now for others, though, the question about this being both divine and human, that human nature of the book and the history of this means, how can I then trust that what I have is what God inspired? That what I have here isn't the summation of an ancient game of telephone. Did any of you guys play this in elementary school? Right, so you go over and like, you know, Timmy ate 50 bananas or whatever, and then it goes down the whole classroom and then ends up over here, and it's like, you know, Teresa went to the moon, you know, and, and got her bachelor's or something. You know, it's like, how did it, how did it become those two things? And I think sometimes that's our fear is that's like how we have the Bible, especially when we understand the humanity of it. And so here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna deal with this right now. So fire hose on, tap into that caffeine. And here's the thing, I am not going to apologize for the next few minutes because I am so tired of people leaving the faith over questions that have really good answers. And so we're gonna give you these answers so that you can walk with these. And so, you ready? Everybody's ready, here we go. Let's start first with the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures, what Jesus would have called the Tanakh. The Tanakh being an acronym for Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Ketuvim, that is the writings, and then the, um, oh, excuse me, the Nevi'im, which would be the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which would be the writings. So Tanakh, Torah, uh, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, all come together, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Same books as you have in your Old Testament. Different order, I would argue better order, but that's a conversation for another time. But the main thing is, same books. 
Now, the question is, where do we get these? Where do we get these from? Three important groups of manuscripts com are comprised in the English Bible that you have in front of you. The first is the Masoretic text, the Septuagint translation, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So first behind me is examples from the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text, man, the Masoretes, oh, I, if I could go back in time and have a different job, these guys sound rad. The Masoretes were Jewish scholars who preserved the Hebrew scriptures from 500 to 1000 AD. They developed an incredible system for counting numbers, or excuse me, counting letters and paragraphs, all so they could ensure that you have the right, they made math out of the Bible so that if it didn't like come up to the right number, if certain books or sections, you would know you were missing something. All because they were trying to figure out how do we best ensure that we're making exactly what's been here. As you look through different examples of the Masoretic text, I think there are some on this one, you'll find little examples where scribes would leave notes for later scribes. You know, dear so-and-so, right here, this word is, mis it looks like it's misspelled. That's actually the spelling that comes from, and then they list a couple other places in the Bible. So, hey, this isn't crazy, you know, this isn't my typo. I'm going based off of these other readings from the scribe that came before me or other little notes about punctuation or things like that. You know, don't mess that up. You'll even sometimes see like lines cross through where it looks like their like teacher or boss came through. I was like, no, you misspelled that. You know, or you missed a word that goes right here and they'll write it all in. And so all, they just, they created this whole thing. So we have 6,000 manuscripts of the Masoretic text. The oldest complete one that you'll see is the picture behind me from the Leningrad Codex. So on the left is a, a, um, a piece from Exodus 15. And then that's the cover of it. How cool. I want that for my Bible. You walk in here and you got this. So you have the Masoretic text. Now here, your English Bible is a translation from Hebrew to English based off the Masoretic texts. But you don't have just the Masoretic text being represented in your Bible. You also have the next one is the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation from the Hebrew that was made between 200 BC and 100 AD. The Septuagint would have been the Bible of pre-Christian Judaism as well as early Christianity. You know, this was Paul's Bible, we might say. When we find him quoting in the New Testament, he regularly quotes from both the Hebrew and the Septuagint. little Bible nerd nugget there for you. Now, the Septuagint, Greek translation, we have thousands of manuscripts of the Septuagint. We have fragments that date back to 100 A.D., and so what Bible scholars are able to do is we take the Masoretic texts and we lay them alongside the Septuagint to compare, and we, we can either reverse engineer the translation by going Greek back to Hebrew or just looking at word order and spacing. Now, what's crazy, is there an incredible consistency among all of these? Uh-huh, like really cool consistency. Are there differences? Totally. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't bother you. For more reasons, I'll show you in a moment. Now, the third one, and this is the coolest thing that ever happened in biblical studies, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, there's a shepherd outside of Israel around the Dead Sea who he's out there with his sheep, and he gets tired, so he crawls into a cave to take a nap. And what he finds is one of what would go on to be 11 caves of Qumran, all stuffed to the gills with pottery that's been stuffed with thousands of Jewish writings. 200 of that thousand writings are biblical scrolls. We, they found every book of the Bible, of the Old Testament, stuffed in here with the exception of Esther. And so it's just this incredible thing. And they guess they date back to 200 BC to 100 AD. Ugh, it's so cool. So here, what, one of the coolest things that they have is the great Isaiah scroll, the whole book of Isaiah. Now, here's what's great. We have the Masoretic text, with the old, which is the oldest um, manu, like, version of the Masoretic text we have back in the Leningrad Codex. 
that dates back to about 1,000 AD. So that's super old, but that's not like really, really old. But we have that, and then we go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're able to reverse engineer how faithful the scribes were by 1,000 years. We're able to read the Isaiah Scroll is from the time of Jesus, y'all. And so what's so cool is you take the Masoretic Text, the Leningrad Codex, and these other writings, and you're able to compare them with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and what you find is this incredible consistency that is this awesome testimony to how faithful scribes were for over a 1,000 years, and in a both-and paradigm, not just faithful scribes, but the Holy Spirit was through them. Yes and amen. So cool. So this enables them to reverse engineer this and be able to find the consistency that they found. And was there incredible consistency? Oh, yeah. Were there differences? Mm Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't bother you a bit for a reason I'll show you in a moment. So here's the question. Where does your Old Testament come from in your Bible? Right behind me is the Biblica Hebraica Quinta. This is an example from Deuteronomy. You can buy this online. This isn't hidden. There's no conspiracy. There's no, like, you know, hidden away, like, you've got to dress up and, like, pretend to be some kind of weird monk to get in to look at. You can buy it online. It's expensive, but you can buy it online. And so here's what you have. Up top, you have the Hebrew, the Masoretic Text. And then down below, you can see all these weird footnotes and symbols. I couldn't get a bigger version. I'm sorry. It's very blurry. But down below, you'll see uh, little signs, crosses and Vs and, you know, big capital letters and, you know, Greek letters, all these different things. What this is, is it is footnoting from the Masoretic text where there's any differences with any of the other primary manuscript traditions. This then gets translated into English, put into your Bible, and most, if not most, I'll say most, of those translation differences or those manuscript differences appear in your footnotes. So just this morning, I was reading Psalm 34, and I'm reading through verse 5, where it says, those who look to God, those who look to him, are radiant with joy, and their faces will never be ashamed. Psalm 34, verse 5. Right down here, oh, there's a footnote. It says, some Hebrew manuscripts, and then it lists the Hebrew manuscripts, some of them, but not the Masoretic, but some Hebrew, other Hebrew manuscripts, the Septuagint, two other manuscript traditions that I don't even recognize off the top of my head, and Syriac. They read not, um, those who look to him are radiant with joy. Those ones read, look to him and be radiant with joy. So here you have Psalm 34, 5. In the oldest versions of these that we have, the Masoretic text, it is a, not a command, but a statement. Those who look to God are radiant with joy. But then you have these other translations that, for whatever reason, maybe it was a typo, maybe it was intentional, made Psalm 34, 5 a command. Look to him, and you will find the radiance of joy. It's not hidden. Great example right there of, of the differences between manuscripts, nothing crazy. And we just go, man, that's cool. And you know what? If, if those are enough representation within those translations, there's probably something worth thinking about there. For some reason, the sub, man, we could just go on. For some reason, these other translations said, man, it's not enough just to say those who look to him will be radiant. And they said, man, we're, we're going to make sure that people understand this, not just to be a reflection, but a command. And so there's, it's right there. Not hidden. No conspiracy. It's, it's in your Bible. <laughs> not scary at all. And so you can trust all of this and believe that what you have is, has been faithfully handed down. Now, the big question, Brian Ivey asked me this a couple months ago, not a year ago, what about the New Testament? So Jesus clearly understood the Old Testament as being the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, as God breathed. What about the New Testament? He didn't write a word of it. It wasn't written until after he died and, you know, the claim is resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Y'all, we think of this about like, you know, we use this for like church vision statement or like evangelism Sunday. And we should, but let's read this in its original context first, where Jesus, after being raised from the dead, gathers his disciples, his apostles, the 12, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's happening here in the original moment is Jesus is saying, I now come as the resurrected reigning king who has all authority in all of heaven and earth. And I am now deputizing you guys, like, you know, a cowboy movie. You guys are getting the badge to now carry out my authority to teach, to tease out what it means to follow me as the resurrected king and as the fulfillment of the, of the story of Israel. So you guys now have the authority to go on and carry that. What is that teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you? The four gospels, the book of Acts, the letters of Paul and Peter, the book of Revelation. This is the framework. And, and this is so evident because this is how Paul and Peter both refer to their own writings, but more importantly to the writings of one another. Paul will refer to Peter's writings as scripture and Peter does the same thing. They understand, they set these writings alongside the writings of the Old Testament. What would, what would encourage some really good Jews to start claiming their writings, their letters to some random church are on par with like Jeremiah? Other than they believe that they had been deputized by the risen Jesus to bring out and tease out what it means to follow him. So we can believe this is why we have the books that we have. Why do we have the books of the New Testament we have? It's because of the relationship to these deputized apostles. And though there are other early church writings that are really, really good, uh, the Didache is fire. The Shepherd of Hermas, it's like the book of Revelation on steroids. It's insane. <laughs> but the Didache, is, it's, it's, the Didache is a handbook for how to do church that was written in the community that most likely the Gospel of Matthew was written in because there's so many quotations of one another. Oh, so good, you guys. This is the stuff that like gets you out of bed today. So though those other writings are really good, the whole point is those are not directly connected to one of the apostles or written with direct influence under one of them. And so they're really good and we read them for fun and, and for benefit, even for theology. But we just go, man, those are, that's different because there seems to be something that Jesus sees as going on within his early apostles that isn't in those other writings. This is also why writings like, you know, Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code, you know, he makes a whole thing about the Gospels of Thomas, and there's this whole committee shutting down all these other gospel accounts. They, weren't, they were not written until 300 years after Jesus died, and long after, like, Thomas and Peter and many of the names that they claim showed up. And if you read them, they're insane, the Gospel of Thomas is some of the, you just, you go, this is a different Jesus. One of my favorite examples, it's not my notes, one of my favorite examples in the Gospel of Thomas is Mary Magdalene's following along with all of the disciples, and I think it was Peter or one of the disciples go, Jesus, tell her to leave, because we all know women can't inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul, Jesus sets his hand on Peter and goes, it's okay, I'm going to turn her into a man so she can. <laughs> you just read these things, and you realize, oh, yeah, it's a joke. It makes absolute sense that the New Testament is what we have when we begin to read these other writings. When you see the dating, when you see how far separated they are and how different the theology is. And so, meanwhile, Gospel Peter Thomas, 300 years later, 
The earliest writings of the New Testament are within four decades at most of the life of Jesus. It's profound. And so the, the key frame of why do we have the books that we have, you know, you could do the, the three main things. Apostolicity, that is, they are written by or under the direct influence of an apostle. Antiquity, they can be dated to the life of that apostle. And orthodoxy, there's no crazy Jesus, you know, swap, you know, turning people into things that they aren't. And so this is how we have the books that we have. Now, here's some more fun Bible stuff. They found this ancient papyri uh, that dates back to the first century, and it was like a little proto-New Testament that it had all packed together. Is that it? No, not this one yet. I'm talking about something that's not this, but this is coming up. But that's what it looked like, kind of. So it's this, dates back to the first century, and it's a book of papyri that have compiled together all four of the Gospels, the book of Acts, and Paul's letters. It's like a little, it's like before they had Revelation and John and the writings of Peter ready to be put in, they already had this little proto-New Testament that they were carrying around, packaged like your New Testament would be. These are really cool. Oh, wait, we're not there yet. Sorry. I'm, we got to geek out about what, the books that we have before we get about how we know we have the right things in the books. Similarly, church fathers Irenaeus, Athanasius, and what's called the Muratorian List all of these writings are about a couple centuries apart and an ocean apart. And what's fascinating is when you read their writings, they have reflections on what is the New Testament, what are the sacred writings of the church. And so they'll name out the Old Testament. And they all refer to the New Testament that we have as a unified set. And so the bottom line here is, this is unlike, again, Da Vinci Code, no council ever voted on what books were in or out. The New Testament grew from the body of the apostles' teachings through the local church communities. These church communities found them favorable. They began to hire, as really expensive, hire scribes who would make copies and then send them to other churches that made copies. And the whole point is, it wasn't as, as soon as they made a copy, they put it into like a shredder. They kept that copy, and those papyruses were so cared for that they existed. This is the Fragments of Truth documentary. Upwards of hundreds of years that those things lasted. And so at any point, if you had a Gospel of John that you were reading that seemed weird, you could go back to, like, you know, the church in Jerusalem and their original copy or one of the earlier copies and compare them and go, yeah, this is crazy. And you put that one in the shredder and you make a new one. Or you make edits, and we, we actually have manuscripts that do that. So we know we have the right books. And what's awesome is the question then is, how do we know that what we have in the books is the right content? So yeah, we have John, but how do we know nobody snuck something into John? What about the right content? And so how do we do this? We have over 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament to compare with. We have them in Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and other ancient languages. We have around 6,000 in Greek alone. In addition to all this, we have more than 1 million quotations from the church fathers of the New Testament during just the first three centuries. And so all of that huge mass of writings is when we ever, we have question, we can just go compare with all of these other trends that we can find and, okay, what's been added? What's different? Is there anything here? So some examples of these manuscripts because this stuff's so rad. Um, now the one that, yeah, okay. So the top left is, this isn't the real one. Um, <laughs> this is my little, my little desk ornament. I told you I'm into this stuff. So this is Ryland's Papyrus P52. This is the oldest New Testament manuscript that we've found so far. And it comes from John 18 on one side and John, the continuation of John 18 on the other side. And what's so cool is if you've read John 18, it's the trial before Pilate where Jesus identifies himself as king of the Jews. What got him killed? Our oldest manuscript is a testament to Jesus claiming the identity that got him killed. Y'all, I'm gonna do a lap right now. That's huge. 
So that Jesus is, was not just some like good teacher that then people went in and made a legend out of him and put all that stuff on him. Our oldest manuscripts that we have are a testament to him claiming to be king, Messiah and king of the Jews. Oh, y'all, get me a towel, I'm sweating. <laughs> so we go up a couple more years. There's the Chester Beatty Papyrus, P46. This is 86 of 104 pages of Paul's letters. So it was like a book of all of Paul's letters that over time, you know, there's a big chunk, like 20 or so pages that have been lost and just got ripped off or broke. But you're able to see all of Paul's writing. You can just flip through and read it in Greek. And then uh, the bottom of papyrus, P62, this is um, another 25 years or so later dated. It's 75 of 78 pages. It's the Gospel of John. It's like a little, like, your own little personal Gospel of John. Or it would not be, you would not have a personal Bible. This would be stored at your, with your local church, the, the family that you, you met in. They would probably have papyrus that would keep it waterproof and safe, and you would bring it out for the Sunday gathering. But there's the, there's the Gospel of John. There's, there, there's, there's these documents. Here they are. So what you do is you have 20,000, 6,000, these are all Greek, but 20,000 of these kinds of manuscripts that when you're trying to figure out how do we know what we have, what, what are we working with, you can go and compare these and just see what's going on here. Now, we'll talk about the comparisons in a moment, but first, the dating. Notice that 125. Oh, oh I totally forgot. Okay, P52, what's so cool about this, based on what we know about how long papyrus has lasted and were in use, there's a pretty high certainty that P52, the oldest copy of John, was a copy from the original, from the autograph is what it's called. Y'all! Or at the very least, it's in the circulation at the time of John, and at any point could go and be, you know, counter-checked or confirmed. And so, there you go. So what's cool is, notice the dating here, 125, We've got this being dated back to within, within a lifetime of the life of Jesus. And you've got 20,000, 6,000 in Greek. Now, to the next slide, let's compare these with other academically received ancient documents. Let's just play the comparison game here. So you've got Homer, Plato, Caesar, the Iliad. And so the date is um, when the, uh, the original autograph was composed, when the original version was written. The earliest manuscript is based off how far back can we go in finding archaeology manuscripts. And then the time gap between those two things and then the number of Greek manuscripts to compare and contrast with, okay? So let's just notice here. We've got Homer's Iliad. If you've ever read it, it's so good. Um, it's rad. Anyway, um, so it was written in 800 B.C. We can date back our oldest manuscript that we have to about 400 B.C., which is a 400-year time gap between the two, right? So you've got a 400-year time gap between when it was original, 400 years of whatever translation stuff could be happening, and we have 1,700 or so Greek manuscripts to you know, get a good idea of that. And most historians would say we have, we have a, a good, authentic representation of Homer's Iliad. Like, we're not like, oh, who? it's not even worth reading. There's no way. No, it's, it's Homer's Iliad. It's authentic. It's, we, we can read it. You keep going. I mean, Plato's Tetralogy. I mean, come on now. 400 B.C. to 895, 1,300-year time gap. Think about that, of like translation and, and writing that stuff down that could be happening. And we only have 210 Greek manuscripts. And yet, most historians academically receive that as being a worthwhile read. A fate that, yeah, there's translation, you know, there are, or scribal manuscript transmission, but it's, it's still worthwhile reading for good history of the ancient world. Caesar, once again, 9th century, that's 950 years. You have 251 Greek manuscripts of that to compare with the New Testament, Okay. 
the date of the earliest manuscripts, 50 to 100, within 40 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The earliest manuscripts that we have are about 80, 130 or less. Remember P52, we just talked about a moment ago. So it's a time gap of about 40 years. And, and how many just Greek manuscripts do we have? 6,000. The whole point is, the criterion for embarrassment, the New Testament, f- flying colors, y'all. That we can believe that what we have is an authentic representation of what the apostles of Jesus wrote. When you compare all of the, this is where it gets really fun. When you compare, I keep saying that, I'm sorry. It's all really fun for me, clearly. <laughs> when you compare all of the manuscripts, those 20,000, 6,000 or so manuscripts, what we find is the New Testament is 97 to 99% textually pure, depending on what, what things you're counting or looking for. Most of those differences are typos, grammar, misspellings. Sometimes, yes, it is more. So we talked about when we went through the Gospel of Mark, the added ending of Mark, that it seems like the papyrus was worn away or that it was left open-ended on purpose because the reader would then tell their story of seeing the red. There's all these reasons why the Gospel of Mark may have ended. But then within about 200 years, the Gospel of Mark um, was given an added ending by another author to help kind of package the story in, in a new way. So there's a difference. We find that within our manuscripts, and that's why you have a footnote in the Gospel of Mark that says the earliest, trans, uh, the earliest manuscripts don't have Mark, you know, 15, da 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 to whatever. We find 97 to 99% to actually fear, and there is no central belief that hinges on any of those differences. And again, just like we just did with Psalm 34, if you just go through your New Testament, you're going to find those footnotes because we're not hiding anything. You'll see those differences. One great example is, Jesus chastises the disciples because they weren't able to cast out uh, a demon. And he goes, don't you know these sorts, there's some kinds of demons that can only be cast out with prayer, is how we translate it. There's later manuscripts that add, and fasting. What is fasting other than just like really serious prayer? But, but there was some, manu- that, that became a manuscript tradition of adding that to make sure that when it comes to spiritual warfare, sometimes you gotta fast to really, you know, get those prayers in. But again, no, no, this isn't, the resurrection was added, you know, or anything like that. All of the earliest manuscripts have that. So where does your New Testament come from? Uh, this is the Nestle Allen 27. This is a uh, the Tyndale House Cambridge's, their Greek New Testament that they publish. Um, and so here's what you have. Let's find a good example of one. Um, the Greek text, right? And then footnotes with all these little signas and symbols and letters in Greek and different languages that all are signifying different manuscripts where there might be a difference or where there's multiple manuscripts together that have a difference. So some of that, that's weird for you because that's, that's very complex and human and that, that's, maybe that's scary for you. I, I would rather have this where I can track and see where there's been differences, how big those differences are to see that they're not that big as opposed to a golden tablet's view of the Bible where there's no, there's no, you just gotta take it on blank, you know, blind failure. I guess this is it. Whereas here, I'm able, oh no, I'm, I'm able to, to study and to see this. So again, nobody's hiding the Bible. Is this complex? Is it human? Absolutely. Is it awesome? 100%. But there's no conspiracy here. This is just a testament, like I said a moment ago, to the hardworking scribes and, and the work of the Holy Spirit within them. 
And so the New Testament more than passes the criterion of embarrassment. We can trust what we have is an authentic representation of the apostles' writings. And so here's my, my whole point of this today is not that you guys all walk out as Bible nerds and P52 with me like this week, but if you guys want to, that'd be great. My whole point in doing all this is just to like fire hose your heart and soul to know that you can receive and read this book as an authentic representation of the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus read and what the disciples wrote. Does this answer all of our questions about the Bible? No, but it means that amid our wrestling, the one thing we don't have to worry about amid it all is that this is somehow corrupted or broken. That I can go with all of my questions and, and difficulties and at least I know that what I'm reading here is what Jesus was reading in the Old Testament or that this is what the apostles wrote as a faithful way to follow him. So, fire hose shutting off as we begin to kind of, you know, move, move in a new direction. Today I've largely dealt with the humanity of the Bible because that's most often where most of our confusion, misinformation, and deconstruction come from for many today. But I don't want us to forget the central claim that this is both a human and a divine word, conviction that goes back to Moses. This is God speaking to us. And so maybe now what you want me to do is to prove the divine authority of the Bible like I just did with its human authenticity. Here's the reality. I can't. I cannot prove that this is the word of God. I can give evidence through some of the prophecies in the Old Testament and their fulfillment. But the grounding basis for this book being a divine authority in your life to guide you, to lead you, is Jesus. That is how this thing becomes what it is to us. Receiving the Bible as the word of God begins with receiving Jesus as the son of God. To believe, like he said in Matthew 28, that all authority belongs to him. And then to receive that authority expressed in the scriptures, the Old Testament, that he claims to be the fulfillment of, and the apostles that he deputized to teach and train us in what it means to follow him. And so if you want to find this as a divine word, you want me to prove it to you, you, have, you just have to start reading it. That's the only way to find it that way. To start with simply reading the gospels, to be able to receive them as an authentic testament of the life and the account of Jesus and ask the spirit of God to breathe into your heart as you do because we believe like Paul said that they are able to give wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the whole point is at the point of that faith in Jesus Christ that is when something will click within your heart and and you will now begin to understand and see Jesus as king and then the prompting is to receive the gospels and all of scripture as the means through which he expresses his authority and the means through which we express our loyalty to him. By receiving its teaching, like, like again, 2 Timothy says, receiving its teaching, its rebuke, its correction, its training in righteousness. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about the Bible as our authority, is, is not that this book by itself is anything. Yes, this is God's word to us, but it's when we come to it as the people of Jesus that it actually is what it's meant to be. Jesus expressing his authority to us. And so how... Do we as disciples of Jesus read the Bible as divine authority? I could spend so much time here, but we've just been, we just went on a crash course in biblical manuscript tradition. So let me just give one little thought for us today that I've been thinking about this week. How do we read the Bible as a divine authority? I think one thing worth chewing on is that we come to it with a posture of submission rather than subscription. I got this from the old preacher John Stott. Subscription... This was even before, uh, back in his day when he wrote this. But subscription, you know, think about something like Netflix or Stitch Fix. You know, the way Stitch Fix works is, you know, you, you pay like a flat rate once a month or whatever, and they send you all the clothes. And what do you do? You open the box, maybe try some things on. What you don't like, what do you do with the stuff you don't like? You can just put it back in the box, and you send it back. And then they'll send you something next time. But you keep what you like. 
or with Netflix. Nobody gets a Netflix subscription believing they're going to watch everything on the platform. That would be insane. Like, I gotta get, you know, $10 a month or whatever it is. Like, I'm paying for a lot here and I gotta take in every minute of it. No, it's a subscription. We pay a flat rate to then go through and pick and choose or maybe have an algorithm force feed down our throat what it is that we want to enjoy, what it is that we want to receive. I think we have a propensity to very regularly in the Western church to treat the Bible more like a subscription than the posture of submission. We do this very often by outright rejecting the parts of the Bible that we don't like, but more often we read the Bible for validation rather than revelation. And so we gravitate to passages or interpretations which agree with us. We play the game of confirmation bias. It's what everybody does with the news right now. We do it with the Bible. We make ourselves the authority rather than some kind of objective truth, and we look for the Bible to um, be curated around our desires and what we want rather than having our lives an open book before the book. And so submission is the posture. If we believe this to be the divine word of God, submission is the name of the game. We live our lives as an open book to, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, that all of scripture might guide us in salvation, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in good works. We receive that. And so I know this opens all sorts of questions that we're gonna deal with in the coming weeks. How do we receive a divine word that comes to us through a human context? We're spending a whole week on reading the Bible as ancient literature ancient human literature. How not to read the Bible is looking at how do we read these commands this way. Like questions like, how is Leviticus authoritative for me as a follower of Jesus? Does that mean I need to keep kosher diet? Am I not to wear you know, clothing of mixed fabrics? We're gonna deal with this in the coming weeks, the book club as well. But finally, the bigger question is, how, how the Bible is mostly narrative. How is a story authoritative for my life? I want 10 commandments. I want Sermon on the Mount. How, this is mostly stories. How is story authority next week? Come back next week. Okay, practice for this week, and then we're going to land the plane. Sound good? You guys have been so wonderful, and I hope this was helpful today. But let's land the plane, a couple practices, and then we'll, we'll, land, we'll, we'll, we'll head into time of response. Uh, collectivechurch.com, as you heard, slash current series is for your discipleship groups as you gather this week. Also, the QR code on the back of the chairs if you're not in a discipleship group and would like to be in one. As we began the discussion last week, um, we are having a conversation the first two weeks on our relationship to the Bible. If you haven't done that yet with your DG, do the questions that they already have. If you have done those questions and now you're looking for more, here's the questions for you to ask as a discipleship group and discuss together. Are you more prone to emphasize the human or divine nature of the Bible and why? What complications arise from such a reading? What gets in the way of you reading the Bible as authentic and as authoritative? And how does subscription over submission appear in your discipleship group? So discuss your relationship together. But as I close, let me say again, we read the Bible as Jesus' people. We believe Jesus expresses his authority through this book. To go back to the Andrew Wilson quote from last week, I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. I don't trust Jesus because I trust the Bible. It is Jesus who is the chief one that we look to as our authority, and we believe he, his means of ruling comes through this book. And man, just to go back to the divine and human partnership, Jesus, who was the chief and greatest example of that. Jesus, as, as when God became human in Jesus to be the partner to God that you and I have failed to be. And as we look to him, when we look at Jesus, we see humanity not in some superhero version. We see humanity in its fullness. It's 100% human is what it means to be Jesus. And we also see divinity at its closest when we look at Jesus. 
And what's so profound when we look at the center of that partnership, at the center of the partnership of divine and human is self-giving love. It's shown to us in the cross of Jesus to free us from the implications of our rejection of that partnership that God wants to have with us, all of our half-human ways of being, and through the sending of his spirit to free and shape you and I into his likeness, into his image, to be who he's made us to be. This is what the gospel's all about, that God in Christ has relaunched his partnership with humanity, and he's inviting you and I to be a part of it. And this is what we're gonna be in all of next week. But the end goal of a life shaped by Jesus as shaped by the scriptures is an increasing experience, an increasing reality of that God and you partnership. And what we find is that as we submit ourselves to the scriptures, it's not that we become less of ourselves, but we find ourselves being more of ourselves as we lean into him. As we allow him to teach and correct and rebuke, we find on the other side of that challenge more of ourselves than less. More of what it means to be human than a degradation or an overriding or diminishing of that. And so my hope as we move into a time of response today would be for you to see the Bible not just as authentic, not just as your authority, but an evidence every time you look at this book as God's commitment to do his work in this world is through humans just like you and me, open and submissive to his will. And when that happens, it's not that you become less, but you find yourself being fully human in this partnership that you've been invited into. Let's pray.